On today's podcast, we have Jason Harris. Jason has an inspiring story going from zero to 2,500 doors with a real estate portfolio worth over $350 million. Now, what I love most about Jason's story is he wasn't making a million dollars or even a half million dollars, not even a quarter million dollars a year. He had a full-time job at Edward Jones making $70,000 a year, and he was still able to do this. The other thing is up to 70 doors, he only had duplexes and fourplexes. He didn't have a big apartment complex of 30 or 50 doors. So it's a really inspiring story, but I think you know somebody with an average income out there this is your story. This is somebody that was in your spot and he did it. And so I'm so excited. Let's jump into the podcast. Jason, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it. This is a big deal. You guys totally like rearrange flights for this. And so I'm really grateful. Absolutely. I thought that it's been awesome to spend time with you um, connecting on lunch a couple times and your story's just been so inspiring and you're local, you're right here, and you're just so crazy successful um, with what you've done in real estate. I thought it would be awesome to share your story and, and go through it. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. So where did you grow up? Amarillo, Texas. Okay. And then when did you come to Utah? 2007. I came up to BYU. And you were studying what? Well, had no idea what I wanted to do. I think just Hoping to get in the business program, but yeah. economics is what okay. I ended up studying. And then what did you foresee? Like, what were you going to do with that? You know, honestly, I did not know. I do remember a professor in accounting, though, who said, I don't recommend you rushing through your college experience. Figure out what you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about it and you love it, yeah, then you'll be really good at what you do. And if you're good at what you do, you'll find a way to make a lot of money. And so for me... I really wasn't sure. I just wanted to be successful. I wanted to make a good, strong income, and I wanted to be wealthy, but I really didn't know how to do that. Um, I found my passion a little bit later, uh, but investing was always something that I really loved, and so uh, economics seemed to fit real well. Yeah, Accounting and business, economics, those were all kind of what I was anticipating that I'd probably be going into. That's wise advice. I mean, I look back... And it took me eight years to get a four-year degree. It's like, kind of like the Tommy boy joke, you know, but I'm so grateful for that because I think if I would have done it, just me specifically in four years, I probably would have done the classic traditional route, go accept a job somewhere. And I may still be on that road, which is really scary to me. And so I, I think there is a lot of wisdom in not rushing through it and experimenting. This also goes hand in hand with I remember people would always ask me when I'm in college, like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I was always like, isn't that a crazy dumb question? Because like, how would I know? I've never done anything. So So why are you guys all drilling me with this? You know? Absolutely. Well, and again, you've, that's why I think it's important. You got to find what you love, what makes you tick, what makes you excited to get up in the morning. Um, I, I knew at a pretty early age, I wanted to do something different than my dad. And which was what? Well, he really didn't have a a path. I mean, he he got a degree in marketing. Yeah. And marketing quickly changed, obviously with social media and sure. other things. And so his degree kind of became less important and relevant to what he wanted to do, but his idea was he was going to do what his dad did, my granddad, 
And that's worked for the same company for 30, 40 years. Yeah. Retire with a pension plan and yeah. let them take care of you. And that's what my dad hoped for. And I just saw failure after failure. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, he was laid off two different times, not because he wasn't even a good employee. I think my dad's one of the most loyal people that there is. In fact, uh, gosh, I got mad at him at a couple of times when I asked to go to lunch with him. And he said, I only have a 30 minute lunch break. I'm like, Dad, you're 30 years into your career and you still are so wow. rigid. Wow. But he was just so loyal to his company. It's like, wow, these, these are the kind of people I want to hire, you know, is, is how I was thinking. But Isn't that crazy? Like you you talk about your granddad, right? Mm-hmm. The, that generation, it was totally normal to work your whole life for the same company. The ERISA Act of 1974 and then the Tax Reform Act of 1986 changed so much of putting that burden on the employee versus the employer. And so it's changed. And so what my dad, I think, was pursuing and hoping for was more a mirage that just wasn't available anymore. And it just hurt his ability to have meaningful success in any company that he was with. And so our family struggled financially a lot. And there were times, uh, one in particular, where my dad uh, couldn't find a job for about a year and a half. And times were just really tough and tight, despite living in Amarillo, Texas, where standard of living is a lot less. But um, I just felt like I needed to make it on my own and make my own success. And so I started reading investment books and financial books and books on business at an early age hoping that I could glean something that my uh, social circle wasn't teaching me. Mm. No one I knew really had meaningful success. And so I had to go outside of what um, I had access to. And so I found a lot of you know new ideas through books and in time through podcasts and conferences and other things. And so yeah. all I did was come to BYU with this passion and drive that I you know wanted to learn business and somehow figure out what that would mean for me. But so you're studying econ at BYU and then you, you know, in finance, financial management, managing other people's money has to do a lot with everything that you probably learned in business, but it probably wasn't the default path of that. Right. So then you, you become a financial planner, right? That's right. And I wonder if a lot of that came from your childhood experience, because that's very far on the safety side of the pendulum. Mm-hmm. Swinging yeah. to the opposite side. I wonder if that was conscious or subconscious, but you transition from your your probably default path studying econ to become a financial manager. How did that happen? Well, again, going back to uh, my limited circle that I had of people who I deemed successful. Yeah. And my idea of what successful looks like greatly changed over time. <laughs> For but, sure. but then there was one in particular uh, individual. A great gentleman, uh, Bill Hall, he sat down with me when I was in high school and showed me the compounding effect of investing early and young and what that could mean for me in my future. And so in my high school years, I saved 75% of everything I earned and I put it in a joint account at an Edward Jones brokerage account and had it invested in mutual funds. And so it was small because my income was, you know, very limited, 565 at Pizza Hut Hourly. You could see the idea, though, yeah. probably working. The long term of sure. what would happen if I continued to be disciplined in that regard. And so I, in college, actually wasn't on the path of perhaps doing the financial advising route. I just knew he's probably one of the most successful people that I knew. 
and I loved investing. I loved finance. And I figured if I knew more about finance and investing, it'll make me all the better to reach financial freedom. Yeah. And so I navigated to that, I think, just purely because that I thought was something that maybe I could learn myself. Yeah. And the better I became at it, the better I'd be at helping and teaching and sharing others. That's really cool. I think, I mean, I can remember the first time that I learned about the compound effect and I busted out the spreadsheet and just started running numbers. And I was like, this is crazy. Pretty fun. Yeah, it's so <laughs> When you're fun, young. <laughs> right? Like some people call it the eighth wonder of the world. If you haven't ever experimented with it, you totally should. It's interesting now, though. I never even think of the compound effect with money anymore. I only think about it with knowledge and self-development. Because I actually think that compound effect will bring you a lot greater returns financially than the compound effect financially, even though that's still a great thing. But just reading a chapter a day, listening to a book a week, whatever it is, like just slowly progressing, I think will escalate your financial side so quickly, right? Then bonds or whatever, yeah, 5% over time compounding. But what's I the, love that idea. What's the best investment you can ever make? Yourself. Absolutely. The six inches in between your ears. That's right. Investing in yourself is the best investment you can make. And again, I attribute a lot of my success, I think, to that investment of investing early in my life and in my high school years, even of what I would be willing to do to work hard and how I could meet the right type of people and how am I showing up to the world and what kind of value am I creating to the marketplace? And I think yeah. as I focused on some of those key things, it made me realize the type of person that I needed to be uh, personally so that in public I could show up in a way that would help me create more and more value and have more and more people who would want to have what my service is that I offer, product that I offer, sure. whatever it may be. And so yeah, it's that investment, I think, in yourself, once again, that will resonate to be the most. And, and if you want to go to the fact of like, happiness and joy and fulfillment, right? Yeah. I think when you are willing to go through the grind and the difficult things personally, it makes you that much better. And so you've really got to choose the hard that you want. Do you want to be really hard on yourself so that you can have a you know this great life of abundance? Or do you want to be lazy? And then that's a hard path too, because now you don't have money, you don't have means, you don't have friends. Sure. And so isn't Choose that your an heart. interesting it idea, is. right? Because when you talk with somebody that maybe hasn't got to where they want to be financially yet, and you point out maybe the steps that they need to take or the bridge to get there, oftentimes you'll hear, well, that's hard. Mm -hmm. But it's so interesting because if you talk with somebody that's really wealthy or successful, they think that being in their position is way harder than being in their current position. And so... Choose your heart, right? Life's hard. Choose being your heart. broke is hard. Not being able to pay the bills is hard. Absolutely. But also making it to where you're extremely successful or you become financially free is hard. And both options are hard. So like you said, you just choose your heart. So going back to your story, you are studying econ. Then you get into financial advising, which is that's an interesting career because that's not something you start making money. You have to ramp up to that, right? Oh, it's difficult, especially the route I chose. The money that you're managing, you that's how you make your your commissions and, and your income. And you got to build up to that. So that takes a while. But you start going down this road and you're doing this and then you're starting to tinker with real estate. So it actually didn't happen that way okay. exactly, but close. So I started to take, I was in a sales role part time 
while I helped my wife go through school full-time. Okay. So I was going to school part-time while she went full-time. But I started doing really well in sales. And it was a call center job, but they had this unlimited pay scale. And so I was very meticulous about maxing out the pay scale. In fact, because of me, they actually changed the, the pay, pay structure <laughs> because I was this guy making 60 to 80 bucks an hour at a call center job, you know, which isn't as common to make higher income sure. amounts. Sure. And so, um, yeah, very, very meticulous about how I maximized the, the, uh, the pay. But it got to a point where in my econ class, I actually remember uh, one particular uh, professor saying that if we worked hard, made good grades, I could probably make thirty to $40,000 a year. And if you climb the corporate ladder 10 years later, you could double your salary. Well, I'm looking at my current pay that I was making in this part-time job and already could be a six-figure income earner if I just quit and worked full-time. And I was just part-time at the time. Anyhow, my mind, I, I, I almost question sometimes making too much money when you're too young or really young yeah. can really distort, not distort, but it really changes your view of what a career should look like. I'm grateful for the way it, it turned out, but I actually did multiple sales job jobs and didn't finish with econ. So I never graduated. Mm. I called Bill Hall. Okay. And I said, I want to do real estate full-time. I actually acquired a fourplex with my part-time sales job. While you were in college. While I was in college. And so I was still you know, going to school, but I bought a fourplex. The three units of rent covered uh, our mortgage. And so the money I would have been paying in rent, I actually invested. So I still had that mindset of investing in the brokerage account. So I was investing in stocks and mutual funds and doing different things. And at the time, I didn't have kids, so I just thought, wow, if I could just buy two more fourplexes, three fourplexes, and I have a 30-year amortization on it, I could pay these off before you know I'm 55, and I will be financially free. At the time, I didn't have kids. Yeah. I was used to living on less. Your, your level of financial freedom is a lot yeah, different yeah. than right now. Things evolve and change your and expenses, that's okay, right? Though, because at, yeah. that, at that time, it's good. It's way better to hit level one of financial freedom than <laughs> not at all. Because once you get there, then you can go to level two, three, four, whatever. And that's what happened. It motivated me. It excited me. It made me want to get out of bed. The whole take action. And so I was excited about the goal. Now, the goals have continued to evolve. I feel like as you get closer to one goal, it just continues where you set new limits sure. and new heights. And sure. so at this point, you know, I laugh at, you know, what my low target was at that time. But for me, it was something exciting. And so I actually called Bill Hall and I said, I want to do real estate full time. I don't want to be a real estate agent. I want to be an investor. I don't have enough capital to go buy other properties because I just invested my whole life savings in this fourplex. And until I can replenish and go buy another one, I need something in the meantime. And so it was then I decided to be a financial advisor by day and a real estate investor by night. I said, I wow. want to switch over to UVU where they have the financial planning course sure. okay, or stay econ at BYU and asked him what he recommended that would give me the best chance of success. And he said, Jason, I've known you since you were a little kid. You do not need a degree to be successful as a financial advisor. You know what you need to know. You're good with people. So let me put in a word of recommendation. I dropped out of school, started being a financial advisor. Wow. Then about cool. 45 days later, and uh, yeah, 
That is cool. Spent seven years as a financial advisor while I bought more and more real estate and uh, got to 100 units in my 20s. I mean, it's just unbelievable. That is unbelievable. So let's dissect this because that's a big step. Like all of a sudden went to 100 properties. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's pack this up. Something else happened in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because from there, then it's like, you know, there's just, it's limitless, right? But did you start financial advising with the idea of you were going to transition to real estate full-time or did that idea come later on? Uh, in the beginning. You, so you knew that? I didn't know if I would be able to let it go. Okay. Because financial advising, as you build a book of business, can be a really great career. And as you manage assets, there's a pretty nice residual component to that type of career. Yeah. And I just didn't know if it'd be easy enough for me to step away. Uh, but real estate was absolutely my passion. And so if there was a scenario where real estate could support our family while also providing enough disposable income for me to continue to invest in more and more each year, then I knew it, I would, I wouldn't bat an eye leaving. Yeah. So I, what would you say? And then I want to jump into the story, but what do you think has been harder? So right now you're at 2,500 doors going from zero to a hundred or from a hundred to 2,500. Like which one was harder? Yeah. Oh, geez. That's a pretty big jump from 100 to 2,500. And there's a lot of complexity between that. But I would still say zero to 100 is probably more difficult. There's so many things that you need to know and understand and learn and uh, roadblocks that you have to overcome. I was told no so many times by lenders because my DTI wasn't high enough or the property didn't support it. I mean, you've got to, if you knew how, I don't want to say broke, but just I didn't come from means. I didn't have a lot of money. And who, what 20-year-old that's making 30 to 50K a year like I was is bold enough to go to lenders and say, like, I want to own hundreds of units. It means that you have to be a pretty good operator to your actual assets and what they um, cover and the cash flow potential in order to continue to get loans again and again when you don't have a $250,000 income to rely on. And so I had to get very creative. I had to get very, I had to understand the process of what lenders like, how the underwriting goes to know what type of properties they would be able to give, give a yes to me or what I needed to do in order to give myself the best chance. And so I started to do loans with my wife, I started to do loans with myself. We would roll up into commercial at different times. Sometimes we would partner where someone else's credit would help get the loan, but I would oversee the whole project. And so yeah. there was a lot of things that I had to do and learn um, while I was still early in my career as a financial advisor and my income wasn't you know, really strong. And you, you would have had to because both you and your wife were maxed out at around 10 doors each per name, right? And so the 100 doors, that only covers 20. So yeah, you had to get creative by u- using other people's credit or their name or whatever. So you're, you'll laugh. Because I didn't know then more what I know now, I thought, okay, I only can do 10 and so can my wife. And because residential loans are one to four units, I need to make sure every Everyone loan counts. Plus. 
Yeah. And so I always tried to do fourplexes when possible, yeah. duplexes or fourplexes. So I have actually owned very few single family homes. Mm. Most people start in single family condo. I, yeah. I started with multifamily and never really went into the single family because I was trying to maximize my borrowing power. I wanted to borrow 500000 or 700000 or a million dollars per loan because I knew after 30 years it would be paid off. And I also knew the more I could control the appreciation rate of, call it 4.2%, which was the historical average in Utah over the last 20 years, um, I'd rather own $10 million that's growing at 4.2 than $2 million at 4.2. Sure. Yeah. And as long as the property performs and can take care of itself plus cash flow, then why not maximize how much you're borrowing per loan yeah. and how much you're controlling? Makes sense. If, yeah. if you really think that it's going to appreciate, why not leverage more? Because then you're going to take part in more appreciation, plus more tax benefits, plus more passive income, plus more principal pay down. Yeah. So just go The bigger. overall return, ROI was always higher. So I think it'd be really interesting, maybe in like a, if, if it's possible, I don't know if this is possible, but if it is possible, like in a one minute version to walk through what those doors looked like roughly, I know you're not going to know everyone, but zero to a hundred, like maybe the first five or four plexes, then you moved into a 30 unit and then in 50, like I would love to hear like the brief summary what that looked like. Have you heard of Joe Fairless? No. Best ever real estate conference, best ever real estate. I think it's one of his books. So I actually had a podcast with him in my earlier years and I probably was about 70 doors at the time. Okay. And he was blown away that I'd gotten to 70 doors without owning an apartment complex. So Brandon, I was very so those were all fixated like on my duplex fourplex strategy. Those were all duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. At the time, yes. To 70 doors. So a fourplex uh, with a FHA loan. The reason I went FHA is because when you owner-occupy a property, you get better terms. Yeah. Because the bank knows that if it's your primary residence, yeah. you'll fight to pay that payment sure. even in difficult times. Default rate's lower. Yeah. And so they're but willing to- You can to only house hack so many properties, One a right? year. And so, so did you do one a year? My wife and I, she made me commit that once our kids got to the age of five, we had to stay in a neighborhood and let the kids make friends and stay in the school. Sure. But yeah. until then, I could house hack and do as many things as I wanted. And so it was my goal to maximize my borrowing power with the loans yeah. one every year. Because of the owner-occupied component, you get higher leverage with better interest rate and terms. And so almost annually, we were buying a duplex or fourplex, putting 5% down. Uh, the FHA loan was 3.5% down. And uh, in the process, I mean, you wouldn't believe the creativity and links that I went to, but my wife, I had her get her real estate license, which later be, she became a broker, and now we own a brokerage firm. Oh, all wow. because I didn't of know that, actually. One, I wanted access to the MLS but, so that I could actually run the numbers on all the, all properties, the properties that were in yeah. the areas in which I would be willing to buy and to know what the best opportunities were and to make offers on those. But also because any time I bought a building, my wife would get paid the commission. Sure. And so I got creative where I yeah. started to negotiate 
commissions. And guess what? When you buy it with an owner-occupied loan with 5% down and at closing, you get a 7% commission. Oh my gosh, that's pretty brilliant. You get paid to buy property. And if you're smart with it, you buy the best property on the market and you get paid to do it. And then you use what I feel like was my skill set of finding the highest and best use of the property. So I'd buy an underperforming property, usually where the price per square foot was the cheapest and the rental rate opportunity was quite a bit higher because it was below market. There was storage unit and carport and other type of income potential that the current uh, owner wasn't capitalizing on. Yeah. And so I'd find a way to buy a property with no money down because of the commissions. And usually I negotiated the seller or lender to pay my closing cost. So I almost never came out of pocket. And again, Brandon, I had no money. I had to get creative. Like these are the deals you had to do. It's the only deal only I could deal. do is yeah. I didn't have money to do this deals. Is crazy. But and you can only house hack so many times, right? And so what I would do is after I closed on the property, and I just got all the commission, I'd invest it right back into the property through the house hack by renovating, improving the exterior and the yeah. interior. Yeah. When I did that, there's many of these stories. And, and to answer your question, a lot of them were late 1960s, okay. but most mid-1970s, late-1970s duplexes and fourplexes. And so there was, it was kind of a Class C. It was older, uglier, kind of worn down, tired. Sure. But I'd take this capital and I'd freshen it up. I'd make it more modern. I'd give it some nice curb appeal improvement. And by doing that, I, I learned where best to put this money to give me the best type of return. And so usually I'd start with the exterior. I would do storage units and covered parking, and then I'd renovate the interior. And a lot of times the commission dollars are what I used to, to buy the next property. Well, no, to improve the property. Okay. And I would maybe be able monthly to increase the rental income by 500 or $1,000 a month. Mm, yeah. And by increasing it that much, there's this great formula that everyone should know and understand. Net operating income divided by cap rate equals property value. So in this example, let's, let me just use one I did on Bigger Pockets in 2017. It was a fourplex I purchased with Brandon Turner. Okay. And I shared what I did and how I did it. It was a no money down fourplex I bought, made 184000 186000 in about a six month time and had no money of my own except $3,000 to fix the exterior. But I was able to increase the rent about $1,000 uh, through sweat equity of improving the property and uh, painting the exterior of the building. Then I posted a notice to all the tenants. They were all month to month of the $250 rental rate increase. Every single one of them stayed and accepted the new higher rent and were proud and happy that the new owner actually was taking care of the property. So if you take $1,000 monthly of additional cash flow, this property's now uh, spitting out, times that by 12 to get the annualized number, call it $12,000. $12,000 divided by, let's say, a 5% cap rate. Cap rates are kind of on the move in 2022, but they haven't moved a lot. Yeah. I'm just going to use that to make the math easy. Okay. Two, uh, $12,000 divided by a 5 cap is a $240,000 increase to the property value. Mm. Meaning, in a, in a market where cap rates are about 5%, yeah. if you could increase 
that same existing building's cash flow by $12,000 annually, you theoretically have improved the property by 240 grand. So when I'm investing $3,000 of my own money after buying the building because I did creative things to not have to bring in any money to purchase it, and now it's worth $240,000 one month later, that, Brandon, is how me doing that over and over again, I eventually built up enough equity for me to take my duplexes and fourplexes. And luckily, because of the great appreciation that we've seen maybe over the last five or six years, and roll those up into bigger projects where I then got into 20, 40, 100, 300 unit type apartment complexes. So when you say roll it up to bigger deals, are you talking about refi? Or are you talking about sell and then 1031? Selling and then using a 1031 exchange. Now, Oh, I didn't mention this. Sometimes I would do a cash out refi. I want to go back to that example I was mentioning earlier on when I bought them with owner occupied loans because it was owner occupied and it was my primary residence. After I dumped the commissions into the property and boost the rental income, I would have the property reappraised. Sure. And because of the increase in curb appeal, so then I could access it through a HELOC. Oh, okay. A home equity line of credit. So I could have done a cash out refi. Sometimes I did, but oftentimes I would do a HELOC because my primary mortgage had great terms or a good interest rate, and I didn't want to lose that. And so I usually just tap the equity that I just created in the property. Usually uh, you have to wait six months if you bought a property on the MLS where agents were involved and commissions were paid. If you do an off-market deal and no commissions are paid, you could do an appraisal at any point. And so you don't have to wait and season the, the property, month, yeah. the six-month time frame. Yeah. And so often, if it was on-market property, I would reinvest the commissions, and then I'd know at the six-month mark I was going to go try to uh, get that money back. But more times than not, these earlier properties that I did in my earlier career, I, I, I bought a duplex I can think of in Provo, bought it for $271,500, I took the 5% commission, which I think was about 13 grand, uh, improved the exterior and then renovated one side, increased the rental rate significantly. It was a four bed, two bath duplex per side, eight bed, four bath total. And it appraised for 345 at the six month mark. And because it was a primary residence, HELOC lenders often could go up to 100% of the appraisal. And so my loan was because I only put five percent down, something like two, um, two sixty, two fifty eight. I was able to get three forty as the appraisal. Wow. So eighty two thousand dollar line of credit I was able wow. to get. That's incredible. So I took that HELOC eighty two grand and went and bought more properties and just kept doing that, that over incredible. and over and over again. Yeah, because you talk about the five percent down that you needed for that property, not a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And then you're able to get $80,000 out of that, which would allow you so many more of those exact same deals, right? Exactly. And especially when you know strategies to buy property with little to no money down. Yeah. And as I got further into my passion and drive, you know, to build my portfolio, I learned of portfolio loan products. And I didn't have to own or occupy the property, but I could still put 10% down or 15% down. Most people think when you buy an investment property, especially duplex to four, you have to put at least 25% down, if not more. I was buying properties, putting 10% down. But again, 
what if I was getting a 7% commission? Really, I'm only net 3%. And so I just kept doing this over wow. and over. And over time, my portfolio grew and people took note. Something I was doing to acquire, you know, I, I was building and growing a lot faster than most people. Yeah. And so people started to notice and have more questions of what I was doing. And that's how I started to work with partners and in time, uh, you know, the JV partnerships and syndications and did that for a number of years until we started our fund. What? So I'm guessing this was this, these deals that we're talking about were probably taking place between 2010. I, we're not talking a long time ago, right? Most of them were 2014 to 2017. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. So, and this is why you were being a financial advisor full time, right? Financial advisor by day, real estate investor by, by night. night. Okay. This is, and I don't know if you feel comfortable, but what type of annual income were you making at your full time job? At Edward Jones? Yeah. Started out at 30,000, worked my way up. Best year I had was 101, but um, I would say 75, 80,000 was really the top end. That is so cool. Yeah. So 75, 80 grand, best year 101. Meanwhile, you're on this path from zero to 70 doors that are all duplexes, fourplexes. That is crazy. And anybody could do that. On paper, I was a millionaire. Wow. Multimillionaire in my 20s, despite my lack of strong income. And what's interesting now, looking back, Brandon, what's really cool. I think I mentioned about my wife and the commissions that was taxable income that was considered earned income. But because I was buying and able to, because when you're buying properties and you're almost putting very little down, yeah. How long does it take before you can buy your next one? I mean, right away with, doesn't take a while, right? Yeah. So I was able to do deal after deal after deal and not have to have this velocity of money, constraint of yeah. waiting to get my capital back out of the investment because yeah. I had ways and techniques that I was using. The market's different now than it was then, right? Sure. And the cost of money was a lot cheaper then than it is now. And so that was an era of time that worked out. Some of that's luck. Some of it's me being ready and being willing to go out and take the risk and sure. having the knowledge because of the time I'd spent investing in my knowledge and understanding of real estate and networking with other people smarter than me, who had grown to much larger sizes than my portfolio was. But um, I will say, through that process, as I continued to grow our portfolio and buy and sell properties, my wife's income became very significant. Wow. Hundreds just and hundreds. Just regular of, real estate agent business? Just because of me buying oh, and selling ju- property. Just only off you. But, but, but the thing, yeah, well, she eventually started helping others who essentially wanted access to me in exchange, they would work with Carrie as the agent in order to have me oversee their their real estate investments and run the numbers and make sure that they were buying a good deal and what they could do to make the deal better. But besides that, it was growing just from your deals alone. More or less just because of our own. And so what what happened though is she started, her first year she made 82,000. And ever since then, it was hundreds of thousands until it was millions of dollars annually. But it was because of me, just her income. So my measly 101 best year was nothing to us because of the commissions that she was generating. 
but also what our portfolio and the returns that we were making from equity and cash flow potential. And so my Edward Jones income became very, I don't want to say meaningless, but it was like a third or fourth How profit center in there? our tax return. And so it, the only reason I stayed as long as I did actually was because there's this feeling of comfort when you have 401k benefits, healthcare benefits. That is wild. And I learned a lot how to speak to investors about asset allocation, totally. diversification. And I, I had access to smart people, m- money managers yeah. that could help me understand the markets. And that translated well to the real estate investments I was making along with maxing out our retirement accounts each year and a Roth account to, to again, yeah. be tax efficient about how we were investing. Tax-free growth from our Roth accounts and tax efficiency with our real estate portfolio allowed us to be growing wealth in two different buckets. And one thing, just because I don't want to forget it, because my wife's income was as meaningful as it started to get to, but I was essentially pledging it towards the properties, we never took a dollar, right? So we were still living on my $80,000 income while we were investing hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of dollars a year and not touching a dime. And then in the process, the market continued to improve and we improved the properties. As we improved the properties, we got the benefit of forced appreciation and natural appreciation and and all while we lived on my income at Ever Jones. And yeah. so that's what allowed me to eventually have several millions of dollars of equity in my portfolio is because her income, albeit wasn't really truly income, even though it was paid as income, actually was always just our investment capital that was allowing us to buy the properties. Yeah. And so that when you so start cool. having that much income that you technically are generating, but not touching and then spending it, but reinvesting it in assets like we were, it allowed me to grow something a lot faster than most people do. Totally. And we're not talking about like, you know, a pitch maybe where the husband's like, baby, you should get your real estate license. And she's like, well, how am I going to get clients and all this? Like this scenario is like, just help me with my deals. She didn't want clients either. You don't either. even have to work yeah. with clients. And so yeah. it's so fascinating. I also think as an employer, this really puts things in perspective, how valuable the 401k is and job security and the steady paycheck. It means a lot because here you guys are making over a million bucks, but then over here, that 75, 80 grand is worth a lot for a lot of reasons, right? Yeah. The stability. And so it is worth more than 75 or 80 grand. How much do you think you guys were making household when you transitioned from financial advising full-time into real estate? Well, Edward Jones, it was still only that 80 to a hundred thousand range, yeah, I'm right? Sorry, I meant in but, the real estate, but yeah, overall, I probably, we probably were now at the seven figure mark at that point. When you transitioned? Or, or saw the potential for it to be that. Sure. Probably was more what it was. It was probably over half a million. Yeah. Probably is where it was. But with the idea of if I could spend all my time and energy on real like, estate only. make a lot. What then would that mean? Sure. Yeah. And, and Brandon, it's so crazy. If I knew how good it was leaving Edward Jones and doing real estate full time, <laughs> yeah. I would have left sooner. sooner. Yeah. I mean, we, we just 
did so well once I yeah. was able to give it my full attention. Like you just shut off. Yeah. I'm curious, what was your first big deal after the fourplex era? What was your first big multifamily deal? How many doors? Mine was gradual. Was it? Yeah, like, I didn't like go saying, big like right away. Or something, or? 12. It was 12? a 12 plex. Okay. Yeah. My and first then, one beyond four plexes was a 12. What about after that? What was the next big jump after 12? I did a lot of 10, 11, 12 okay. units uh, around that and time. kind of mastered that, yeah. that level. Um, but my biggest, uh, I did a 44 and a 36 unit out of state. That was my first one. And it wasn't with, it was probably less than a year from then that I did 44, 36, and 80, a 56, and then my big one, 237 units. Okay, let's break this down because I think this would be really valuable to the listeners. How different was the 10s and 12s to the 2s and 4s in managing and acquiring in just all aspects? And then how different was the 50 to 80s from the 10 to 12 doors? You know, this is so hard probably for people to believe but the 50 to 80 or even 150 and more are probably marginally just a little more time to, to acquire, but significantly better post-acquisition. Mm. And it's unbelievable the economies of scale benefit of having like on-site staff and more professional property management when you're at that size versus the 10, 12, and 20-unit type properties because you don't have the efficiencies in those sizes. Sure. It's not quite big enough to justify anyone on site. Full time. Right? So yeah, yeah, your property managers aren't going to be over there. And so they're visiting the property, however frequent they get to it. And if you're trying to do my strategy, which is buy ugly and old, something that's underperforming that has a higher and better use, where you're going to have to spend some money or find a better business plan to operate it better, you're going to, you're going to have to spend some time on it and money. And typically the renovation and the money that you're putting into it typically requires vacancy, especially if you're renovating interiors. And so it's time intensive and where you don't have someone full time at your property sure. and you're trying to oversee contractors and leasing agents and property managers and subs and you know, the tenant base it's quite taxing. Like it's, it's quite a bit of time. And so it was difficult. It, it was kind of like the fourplexes were, but just more doors and more headache and problems and bigger numbers. It was, it was easier and better when I went out of state and was forced to hire competent uh, property management teams and contractors to help. Yeah. But, but I noticed even then it was when we got to a size of a hundred units plus where there was enough doors to justify on-site staff, where they were full-time employees of the property, that things really changed. And I was able to really hone in on operating expenses, which allowed us to extract more profit in the, in the property. Yeah. Did that answer the question? Yeah, that did. Do you feel like there's an awkward zone where you kind of believe you should stay clear because it's going to be so much more work? Like you're saying at a certain number, it doesn't make sense because you don't have a full-time property manager or you can't afford it based off the property. So do you feel like there's an area that people should maybe stay away from? You know, my mine's a little unique because I don't know if everyone would do it the same way I did. I don't think I ever knew I was going to eventually be raising capital from other investors. 
um, I always was just investing in my own financial freedom that I was chasing. And I realized I was really good at what I was doing. And yeah. I just organically grew. And so I think partly, Brandon, why I did it the way I did is because I was utilizing mostly still the MLS. And the MLS typically doesn't have bigger projects and properties. Right. And since I was used to Kerry representing us and getting a commission on buying sales for our own properties that we were buying, I kind of stuck to what the MLS offered. And again, when you start getting into the bigger projects, those aren't trading on the MLS. You're going to be working with, you know, the bigger brokerage firms and brokers who deal in the bigger space. And it it took time before I realized that there was this much bigger league mm. out there that I didn't know about. Yeah. I think I, I thought I was a pretty big deal, pretty active, you know, in, in the community, at real estate conferences that were local, on the MLS. I knew properties. I knew what was a good deal and not a good deal and didn't have to spend a lot of time in it because I'd analyzed so many. But I think it more happened purely just because I was used to finding my the source of my properties from the MLS or I had targeted certain neighborhoods I'd owned. And so I did mailing campaigns. I even door knocked certain areas because I knew I'd be willing to buy anything that came up in certain places. And so it happened partly because of that. And so if yeah. I went back and did it differently, I absolutely would have gone and taken the equity sooner into the bigger projects. What do you I, consider bigger? The 80, 100 unit okay. bigger. Yeah. And and partly it's it's unbelievable that financial uh, products, loan options can actually be quite a bit better than that of the residential. And I, I was, I didn't believe that that could be possible, but once I learned about agency financing, Fetty and Freddie products, HUD loans, it changed my mind on how commercial financing actually, when accessing the right type of debt, can be superior to that of residential loans. And so residential loans always, in my mind, were the best type of loan products. That's how I built my business yeah. and my portfolio from it. But I learned how if you're a high net worth individual, borrowing equal or more of what you're uh, trying to borrow on new projects, and you have a strong real estate resume of success, of showing that you're capable or competent to oversee these types of projects, there's awesome type of financing available for those types of people. Interest only debt up front for the first two or three years. For someone mm -hmm. like me that wants to renovate and improve and force vacancy, that interest only payment's really nice because then I don't have to run the property in the red yeah. for any period of time. I can still cash flow with vacancies. And so it, it was it was non-recourse debt versus recourse debt. I took on a lot of risk personally guaranteeing every single loan with hardly any strong income and any capital, all of my wealth was tied up in equity in the properties. And so as I started to transition from, here's this guy, I've got nothing to lose. I'm poor, I'm broke, I'm willing to risk it all because I've been there. I know what that's like. Yeah, I can do that and I'll just work really hard. I'm young and I can make, make it up. But you get to a point where, wow, I actually have something to protect. Sure. I've built something now. You start realizing you have to protect that which you've built. And so non-recourse debt... Uh, interest-only loans, the real estate resume. There's great tax benefits that I learned about. And so all of that started to evolve the strategy to going from the duplex, fourplex game into the 100-unit plus. And I realized that that's a much better transition, one for returns, but also just for the actual efficiency of, of managing those types of properties. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, 
at what level of amount of doors do you think it makes sense to work with a property manager versus try to manage it on your own? You know, it's, it's different for everyone. I think you have to know what your time is worth. Your time is worth a certain amount. My time's worth a certain amount. When I was younger, my time was worth maybe $25 an hour. If, if anything was $25 an hour or more, I would do that because that's a good use of my time. Yeah. But as my time became more and more valuable and I realized when my time's allocated here, I'm worth 500 an hour, 1,000 an hour, whatever an hour, you can't justify spending any time managing your properties when you could pay someone else to do it at a much lower rate. Yeah. And so it's all really about understanding what your time's worth. In the beginning, it was worth it for me to do it. In fact, I'm grateful I did because I learned a lot of things that worked and a lot of things that didn't work, and a lot of things that I shouldn't ever do, trying to be the the uh, the contractor and fixing things was definitely not my skill set. <laughs> I learned that quick, uh, trying to exchange out a garbage disposal on a weekend, and I spent way more time and money than just hiring a plumber to do it. And so I just realized it's like I've got to analyze properties with yeah. the understanding. I'm going to hire these items out. But in the beginning, when my time wasn't worth as much, I was doing every single aspect of the business. I love talking about that because it's a big difference that I see between somebody that's really wealthy and successful versus somebody that's not is they're just trying to save money every area that they can. Like, I'm going to go replace the garbage disposal myself, right? And then you learn that actually costs me more money than what I thought I was going to save. Right. And I think when people make that jump and they realize it's okay to delegate, my time is worth more and I'll make more in other areas. You don't have to save in every little area. Or sometimes people even struggle with, I don't want that person to make money. I want to make that money that I could save. And it's okay. And it's really, in my opinion, it's moving from a place of scarcity to a place of abundance that there's so much out there in the world. And I really think that if, if, and when you shift your mindset, your mentality, your paradigm from going to how many other people can I get involved with this? That's when people really progress fast mm -hmm. versus like nobody else. It's just me. I'm going to try and save every little penny I can. I'm going to do that by myself. I'm going to do this. And it's like... It's crazy. And like, even down to the littlest things like mowing your lawn, there's a lot of pride. And some people are like, no, I need to do that myself and blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's a, such an easy thing to outsource. Like you said, that's like when you first started, you were worth 25 bucks an hour. You can pay people right now, 25 bucks to mow a small lawn, right? That's going to take an hour. And so I think if you're struggling with this or this is a new concept, just start small, like outsourcing letting somebody else mow your lawn. And with that same time, go research the MLS, go research a deal, go build your business, go make another sell, do more things because you probably can make more money at that same time or take that hour and go spend it with your family, your kids and like Absolutely. take your wife on a date, right? Go throw the ball at the kid, whatever. I just think it's so awesome to learn from successful people like yourself and always the common thread always is they understand their time and what they're worth and they're okay letting other people do jobs. And guess what? They don't get to save as much money. I get it, but they end up making more money or they build more memories. And so I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, real, real quick. And we'll probably end on this. 
How are you feeling about the market? Like you said, it's a lot harder to find deals and do things now than it was maybe 10 years ago. What do you foresee the next 12, 24 months being like? May I say one more thing too yeah. with what you just said oh, and then sorry. I'll answer that Absolutely. question. No, I just want to say one other aspect that's so important. It's going back to finding passion and joy in what you do. I did not like the contracts work. I didn't want to be the one painting the apartments to get the value add approach. You have to do what you love. And I love finding good deals. I love negotiating good deals. And I love working with people and investors to discuss how we're going to generate returns. Yeah. But if I was the one that had to do all of the other aspects of it, I probably wouldn't be doing this anymore. Yeah. Because it gets to a point where it's like, enough's enough. I just, I can't stand getting the phone call at two in the morning. And sure. I don't take any of those calls. Yeah. So I get to love and be passionate about real estate because I, I do the aspects of it that I'm good at and that I love doing and everything else I outsource. I outsource. Yeah. And I never think twice about the money I'm giving up because I'm doing what I love. And it goes back to when you do what you love, you're going to be good at it and you're going to get paid you know a really good wage because you are obsessed with that aspect because it's everything, you know, it's just, you, you just love it. And so I think it's important to realize too, like you start doing all of that yourself and keeping it, yeah. you're going to eventually get to where there's too many problems that you're going to say real estate's a bad investment. I hate it. I don't like being a landlord. I'm just going to sell it. Mutual funds are so much easier. You don't have to do anything. It's all passive. And that person's probably right. But I'd also say it's flawed judgment to them taking it all on. There's, there's great ways to own real estate and not have yeah. to deal with all of the, the headache of it too. So yeah. just wanted to point that out. The market, very interesting. That's something that we could talk about for a long time. There's going to be good deals in any market cycle, but we are looking at potentially a reset. Uh, we're looking at things very closely to understand how rates will impact things, but we are in the most interesting time that we haven't seen in any years past that, that, that any economist can remember, really, because yeah. this is a light recession. Unemployment rate is still really, really good. Low. Yeah. Really good. The job market is strong and wage growth is growing. Sure. Yet here we are facing with higher and higher debt and interest rates going up, affordability problems and inflation concerns. And so it's a really interesting time. Um, I'll say from our standpoint, we are cautiously optimistic. Um, on the severity of the recession? On, on the opportunities that are being found okay. in the real estate market. Now, that may not have been maybe where you were asking, but I'll yeah. speak from it in the asset class that we invest in, sure. which is the multifamily sector. If I was in single-family homes, I'd probably have more concerns. But in the multifamily sector, we've got some things that are very favorable. One in particular is... As affordability becomes a bigger problem due to higher interest rates, less and less people are going to be able to buy a home. Yeah. Or just choose not to because they'd like to wait it out. What does that mean for the renter pool? There's an increase of demand people goes up. who demand a place to rent. Yeah. Yeah. I, real quick on this, I just uh, shared this on my social media. Bigger Pockets just shared a statistic where they were showing. 12 months ago, whatever it was, it was pretty recent what the interest rate was and what you could buy to have a certain payment based off that interest rate compared to now with the interest rate, what the home price is. And it's about half. 
unbelievable. It's crazy, right? And so for the people that want to buy that house that can't afford it anymore, what are they going to do? They're going to rent for a while. So that's what we're talking about in rental demand. Yeah. And you're not seeing actually that downward pressure yet still have a big impact on value. Single family homes have come down and softened some, but nowhere near half of what people now would have to pay because of the yeah. doubling of cost There's that interest rates have created. We're, yeah. we're seeing this looking for multifamily deals. Residential, you can see it. It's coming down quick and listings are going up, prices coming down. In the multifamily space, like there's not a whole lot going on yet, right? It's, it's staggering. I mean, yeah. we are investing in markets that have strong net migration trends. Sure. Dallas-Fort Worth, for example, is a yeah. big market that we're very bullish on. Specifically, Dallas, the last two years, has been number one in net migration. A lot of that's come from California, but there's other jobs that are being relocated in Texas, being a red state and being very favorable for job growth. There's been new companies that have come into the Dallas-Fort Worth area, bringing more people in and more jobs. And so what happens is you've got affordability problems, more people choosing to rent. You've got uh, job growth and population increase, number one in the country. And all of that demand means they need more rentals. And there's limited supply, partly because of supply chain problems, partly because uh, less and less people are building. And so because of that, limited supply, strong demand, what happens to rental rates? They go up. And so as value-add investors, buying ugly and old, classy-type properties, fixing them up, we're catering to the lower end of the market rent range, generally, and then fixing up the properties where we're in the middle of the market rent range. We have less risk in a recession or even a cycle, but yet the ability to push rental rates, and and because we analyze properties to a certain rental rate amount post-renovation, we're now seeing $100, $200, even $300 sometimes of what we're able to get above what we expected per unit. And what that means is, it's going back to the formula again, $300 more times 150 doors is $45,000 monthly more in income times 12. It's just math. Which shows you then why would the price go down because now people are getting more. So it's, it's really interesting. 540 grand annually divided by a five cap. I mean, that's $10,800,000 increase to value. Yeah. Interest expense can go up, and yet the property still can support a much higher debt amount because the property is performing at a much higher level. Yeah. So so you still could see property value decline, but because of the value add creation we're seeing, we're we're just going to make a lesser profitable return than what we otherwise would have if interest rates remain high. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. You mentioned this earlier that you've gone from basically managing your own properties now to doing it for others. So let's end on that. If you guys have a fund and if someone's interested in investing with you guys or following you guys, where can they find you? What's the best way to contact you? Um, Probably our website or uh, Jesse Yates. He's our head of investor relations, uh, Jesse at Harris investment group.com. Um, I would probably recommend, yeah, talking to him. And I'm not sure if we still have capacity yet for Fund 2 of this year. There may be a little bit, um, but would love to talk to anyone and see what their goals are and see if we can be of any help. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on, Jason. Thank you, Brandon. Appreciate you having me.